The Hamlet Podcast, episode 99. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Hanrity. We begin a new scene, Act 3, Scene 3, almost immediately where the previous scene ended. Hamlet is having dark fantasies about the similarities between his situation and that of Nero, not least his rather shocking worry about attacking or killing his own mother, as Nero famously did. Of course, the Nero parallel unpacked at length in the previous episode also extends to the name of each young man's problem. As far as Hamlet is concerned, he's also like Nero in that he has an uncle called Claudius who must die, or be killed, before he can reach the throne. Our focus switches now to the Claudius in Elsinore and we get a good look at his reaction to the play and to Hamlet's behaviour over the course of this scene. He enters with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and doesn't mince his words. I like him not, nor stands it safe with us to let his madness range. Therefore, prepare you. I, your commission, will forthwith dispatch, and he to England shall along with you. The terms of our estate may not endure hazard so dangerous as doth hourly grow out of his lunacies. He is not at all happy with Hamlet. He likes him not and thinks it would be very unwise to allow him to continue in this madness. So he tells the two young men to prepare themselves, or pack. He is going to draw up some sort of papers of commission that will send them off to England and Hamlet with them. Claudius feels that his crown and kingdom are not at all secure so long as Hamlet's lunacies continue to breed hazard so dangerous as he has displayed tonight. Showing rather more aplomb than he was allowed in the previous recent scenes with Hamlet, Guildenstern now pipes up and is almost unbearably obsequious. He says, We will ourselves provide. Most holy and religious fear it is to keep those many, many bodies safe that live and feed upon your majesty. He's agreeing ever so eagerly. Yes, your majesty, we will get ourselves ready. We will ourselves provide. He goes on and explains, as if Claudius needs to hear this, that of course it is supremely wise to take these precautions, most holy and religious fear, in order to protect the safety of those many, many bodies that live and feed upon his majesty. God forbid that anything Hamlet might do would harm so benevolent a king upon whose majesty so many people depend. Shakespeare is, of course, one of the greatest poets ever to write in the English language, but he's also a brilliant creator of character. Something as simple as that little repetition, many, many bodies, is such a great indicator of Guildenstern's overzealous response to the king. There are perhaps some editors out there who would have it that it might even be a typo, an error that has become a part of the textual tradition, but I relish the wicked insight that it gives into this poor young man. Not to be outdone, Rosencrantz chimes in next. The single and peculiar life is bound with all the strength and armour of the mind, to keep itself from noyance. But much more, that spirit upon whose wheel depend and rest the lives of many. The cease of majesty dies not alone, but, like a gulf, doth draw what's near in with it. It is a massy wheel fixed on the summit of the highest mount, to whose huge spokes ten thousand lesser things are mortised and adjoined, which, when it falls, each small annexment petty consequence attends the boisterous ruin. Never alone did the king sigh, but with a general groan. 
Now, I don't think my love or interest for this play are in any doubt, but the first thing that struck me as I studied this little speech in preparation for this episode was just how likely it is to be cut in a contemporary production. We've already had our little insight in the Guildenstern speech, and now in Rosencrantz we get the full force of Shakespeare's ability to write hot air. What Rosencrantz is saying is that it is anyone's responsibility to protect their single and peculiar life, to protect it from annoyance or attack, with all the strength and armour of their mind. But it's even more important for someone like a king, a spirit upon whose wheel depend and rest the lives of many. It's a repetition of what Guildenstern said. Oh, your majesty, we all rely on you so much, it's only natural for you to mind yourself. It's only logical for his majesty to take precautions, especially against so clear and so present a danger as the mad prince. But then Rosencrantz completely loses the run of himself, with a big long segment full of images of natural disasters. The cease of majesty, he says, dies not alone. When a monarch or a king dies, it's not just that a person dies. Their death like a gulf doth draw what's near in with it. It's like a whirlpool sucking in everything nearby. It is a massy wheel fixed on the summit of the highest mount, to whose huge spokes ten thousand lesser things are mortised and adjoined, which, when it falls, each small annexment, petty consequence, attends the boisterous ruin. From the swirl of dangerous water we have something like a poetic crossfade to the image of a large wheel turning, fixed on the summit of some sort of very high mountain. It's not a very natural image, a large wheel spinning on top of a mountain, but Rosencrantz is committed to it, suggesting that there could be as many as 10,000 lesser things attached to this great wheel. And when the wheel falls, everything attached, each small annexment, a word which one editor has proclaimed Rosencrantz's sole gift to the English language, each petty consequence is also affected and attends the boisterous or the noisy ruin. Rosencrantz rescues himself somewhat with the end of his speech after this bizarrely overdone disquisition. He concludes, Never alone did the king sigh, but with a general groan. Kings never breathe their last breaths alone. When a king dies, there are consequences for everyone. I really love the expansion in this little image. We've already just had boisterous ruin, which was noisy enough. But then Shakespeare takes us almost sonically from the king's sigh to a general groan. Even in the middle of such overdone, cloudy language, his brilliance does manage to shine through. It's probably worth noting that while this text holds little meaning for us, and is primarily a way for Rosencrantz yet again to show his affected loyalty to the king, for an Elizabethan audience in particular, if we agree with Professor Shapiro that this might have happened in the Elizabethan period rather than afterwards when King James became the king, the idea of a community's reliance on a monarch and any worry about what might happen if and when they die was a much more significant and pressing concern. Of course, what exactly should Claudius say in response to all of this? Hilariously enough, he says nothing. He doesn't even acknowledge it, at least verbally, but instead gets things back on track and dismisses the two young twits. Arm you, I pray you, to this speedy voyage, for we will fetters put upon this fear, which now goes too free-footed. Go and pack, he begs them, and hurry, you'll be leaving soon enough for this speedy voyage. For he is eager to lock down his fears, all caused by Hamlet, who is currently enjoying far too much freedom if he's behaving like this. He could be saying that he wants to put literal fetters on his nephew, or just that he wants to contain his discomfort at Hamlet's behaviour. 
Either way, Hamlet is to be removed and kept out of trouble. Unable to shut up until the very end, the two young fellows agree to the king's demands and say, in unison, we will haste us. And off they go. With all of their chatter, they've prevented Claudius from letting us know how he's really feeling, and before he has a chance to say anything else, Polonius appears. We'll save their interaction for the next episode. For now, thank you as ever for listening, and do be sure to check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for more information and for show notes that accompany every single episode. I'll speak to you next time.